If you will, turn with me to Psalm 131. Our... uh, our world, when you sort of think about it, when you step back and look at our world and how it works, our world functions off of creating discontent in, in people's lives. Right? In many ways, our economy, to some extent, function off of creating discontent in the consumer so that they buy some sort of purchase, right? I mean, I... I I have a lot of Bibles. I have a lot of them. But I remember when I saw this Bible that was uh, artistically rendered from this Japanese artist. It was the four Gospels. I was like, I have to have that. It was like hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I didn't buy it. But I just remember thinking something I didn't even know existed. I have so many Bibles. And yet I thought, no, I need that one. Right? I mean, just think about when you're checking out at the grocery store. The magazine's right there. What do they do? What were they meant to do? What's the sort of marketing scheme? I mean, it's not just the old adage is true that sex sells. That, that, that's a part of it. But really, it's, it's discontentment that sells. It's creating that discontentment in our hearts and minds and souls so that you buy a certain product or follow a certain plan. Do this, do that. that that's what marketing kind of plans are all about figuring out how to create discontentment in all of our lives. Or just think about it, Instagram, right? right? Think about those people who, who you follow who are influencers. I mean, that should tip us off, right? Well, what are they doing? What are they influencing? Well, they're influencing you to you know, buy a product, an outfit, a picture-perfect family, that, that perfect vacation. Think of just the billboards you see when you're driving down the road, the commercials you watch when you tell, turn on the television. Think of just the, the mail you get. All of it is breeding discontentment in our hearts. Right? The, the message is pretty easy to learn. Right? It's pretty singular. It's, it's not even really subtle. It's you deserve it. You want happiness? Get this product. Try this new technique. Do this. Don't do that. Go get it. I mean, even authors are getting in on this. Author Rachel Hollis wrote uh, her first book called Girl, Wash Your Face. And then she wrote a second book called Girl, Stop Apologizing. Now, Hollis's thesis in her second book is this, and I'm quoting here. First, learn to love yourself. And then give yourself credit. And then, never stop reaching for more. Hollis encourages readers to, to make like a top 10 list of goals and to meditate on them. And one goal that she talks about, one example she gives, is that you should meditate on never, ever, ever again flying anything other than first class. Well, that message sells, right? Like hotcakes. I mean, why, why would we settle for coach when you could have first class? I mean, settling is the problem. Settling is the sort of an attack on your desires. And, and then you kind of dress it up in a, like a Christian veneer and say, well, doesn't God give you the desires of your heart? And what if the desires of your heart is first class for the rest of your life? Is God now obligated to give you that desire? 
No, this, this whole message sells because it just fits in with this discontent sort of world that we live in. That book that I quoted, it ranked number one in personal growth. That makes sense, right? It also ranked number one in, Christian, or in women's Christian living on Amazon for months and months and months on end. Right? Our entire world is colluding against us to breed discontentment. And yet there is a, a quiet call toward contentment, toward humility. You've all seen those people who their, their world is falling apart and yet there is just a, a quiet calm within their life and it's appealing. And yet sometimes you're like, but I don't know how they do it. I don't know how to get what they have. I don't know how to experience that sort of contentment and humility when the world is colluding against them to just always be searching for more. These past few months, we've been going through a sermon series in the book of Psalms, but we're just looking at a section of the Psalms. It's a collection of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And these are Psalms that were put together by by an author as songs sung by pilgrims as they went to Jerusalem at various times throughout the year during their sort of pilgrimage, right? Things like the Passover and Pentecost. And so they'd sing these psalms. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 131. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he, he said this about this text. It's too good not for, for me not to share he, he, he said, Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read, but it is one of the longest psalms to learn. Now, b- b- before we sort of get into the text, b- b- before I read the text, before we study the text, kind of break it down, I just want to remind us that whenever we come to God's word, we don't Work in God's word. First and foremost, God's word works on us. So so, so we don't go speaking to God's word. God's word speaks to us. We don't go trying to dissect God's word. God's word dissects us. We come to God's word as beggars. Or we don't come to God's word at all. We come humbly saying, God, speak You set the agenda. You speak into my life. You speak into my soul. And then I will respond in in like like mind. So this morning, I think God has a particular message for us. If there is a connection between what God does in a preacher's heart before what God does in the pew's heart, if I can put it that way, And I think there is a connection. I really do think God's got a very important message for us this morning in this short psalm, but this psalm that takes a long time to learn. The the big idea that's behind me, then I'll read the text, is this, and we're going to break it down. We'll break it down in verse 1, 2, and 3. So contentment comes through, verse 1, battle. Contentment comes through, two, verse two, rest. 
And then verse three, hope. Let me read the text. A song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. When I first read that earlier this week, I, I was praying over it and I thought, I can't really say that. So I turned it around. Oh Lord, my heart is lifted up. My eyes are raised too high. I do occupy myself with things too great. I don't have a quiet and calm soul. I'm like a child. This is a Psalm of David, verse one. And David this morning is going to teach us about contentment. And David tells us, if you, if you saw it, it's, it's phrased in the negative, right? It, it's, verse 1 is talking about what David has not fallen prey to. And I think we can divide verse 1 in half, kind of categorically. So there's two things categorically that David has not fallen prey to in this psalm. First, pride. And then second, presumption. Prideful sort of ambition and presumptive preoccupation. Those are the two, two things that he hasn't fallen prey to. You could say those are the two enemies of contentment. We read, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high, right? That's a, that's a sort of poetic Description of pride, isn't it? Right? Eyes up, chest up, like cocky, right? That, that's, there's even like a, you see pride on people. It has like a, a manifestation, right? When someone gets in those moments where they're, they're beginning to be prideful, there's almost like a, a gesture. And he's saying, I, I haven't done that. You see, pride, it's both a, a dispen, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an attitude, it's a, it's a heart condition, but, but it also involves our conduct, doesn't it? And then the second half of verse one, it says, I I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. That's sort of a poetic description of presumption. It's, it's, It's someone who is presuming to have very little limitations on their lives. That they have the inner track on all of reality. They know, everyone else doesn't know. They don't, might not know as much as God knows, but they know close to what God knows. So just there in verse 1, we have a, a poetic description of pride and a poetic description of presumption. And they are enemies of contentment. And they're two enemies that David battled. And let me just say, they're no exception to us too. David knew a lot about contentment. Now, he didn't always live a content life, okay? Well, we see that in lots of places. Just think of Bathsheba, right? But there are moments in which David did live with contentment. 
where he was fighting and struggling and battling pride and presumption. Especially, I think, in his early life. I mean, just think about this. In in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel, the prophet, goes to David and secretly anoints him as king. But, But he's not enthroned as king right away, is he? Oh, it takes many, many chapters, many, many years until he's actually, Saul dies and he's enthroned as king. And so just think about what happens in between his secret anointing, you will be king. And when he actually is king. And think about the few times that we learn of in the Bible where David actually could have grasped for the throne. Remember when Saul goes into a cave? And David could have easily killed him. Like, easier than duck hunt. He could have killed Saul right then and said, Mine! I'm taking it. It's already promised to me. I'm just taking it right now. But David never did, did he? Or he, at one point, sneaks into to Saul's kind of uh, tent. Saul's sleeping. Easily could have killed him. He doesn't. David is content and not grasping for more than what God gave him and said, God said, you're going to be king. I just haven't told you when you're going to be king. You need to be patient. You need to be content. Don't grab for it yet. David waited patiently on God's providential timing. He wasn't always content. But that's an illustration of, of when he was content. Now, we all live in between those two great realities. God's promises and God's fulfillment of those promises. Every Christian straddles those two realities. Now, let me just tell you, as we live in that sort of wilderness experience, where God has promised these sorts of things, where we haven't seen the fulfillment of those sorts of promises, as we live in the tension of those two realities... One of two things is going to happen in our hearts, inevitably. Either we will have a heart and soul that waits patiently on the Lord for his timing, that is content, even when, as David probably was like, there is no way I'm ever going to be king. I, I, I mean, I, I sooner win the lottery than be king with him on the run and all this sort of thing. I mean, there, he had to have had those sorts of thoughts, and yet... His soul was like, no, I'll I'll wait for the Lord. So as we straddle those sort of promise and fulfillment, either we're going to be content and wait patiently and say, I trust you, God. I'll wait for you. I don't understand why. I'm not going to presume to know why. And I'm not going to, you know, be be cocky or proud about this. I'm just going to trust you and say, you said you're going to do it. I trust that you'll do it in your timing when you see it best. That's one option. The other is an attitude of discontentment. It's, it's an attitude of frustration. It's an attitude of impatience. It's an attitude of grumbling at God's perceived inactivity. God, where, where, where are you at on this one? God, you got you to show up on this one. I'm not seeing you showing up on this. It's a fight. It's a war. And the enemies of contentment, they're old foes. Pride, presumption. Now, pride, it manifests in so many different forms, doesn't it? 
But so often, pride can be a, a form of a sort of pity party. I deserve better. I'm better than this. I'm too good for this. For one day and one day only, I worked at Starbucks. It's one day too many, in my opinion. And so I was training, and this woman came up as part of my training, and she made an order. And she said, I want to have a grande latte, double, whatever she said, right? I don't even know. It was long. And I remember I looked her after she finished, and I looked at this woman, and I said, ma'am, I only got grande. Can you repeat everything that you just said? And then I got like two, because you have to like punch it in. And I remember just feeling so stupid. I remember feeling like such an idiot. And I was reflecting upon that. I was, I was driving home and I was thinking, I have a master's degree, an undergrad degree. I mean, why am I doing this? I'm too good for this job. And I thought those thoughts. It's pride. Even if it doesn't manifest outside, we have these sort of thoughts that just sort of ruminate in our minds. Pride is just the spiritual puffing up of the chest to God. I'm better than this. I'm too good for this. I deserve more. I deserve better. And when you really think about it, when you step back when we're doing that sort of thing, really what we're saying is, God, I deserve better from you, and God, you've let me down, and how dare you, God? It's pride. How dare you give me this physical ailment that modern medicine can't fix? How, how dare you give me that teacher or that spouse? How, how, how dare you give me that job, that experience? So often our discontentment isn't really about the experience or the thing going on. Ultimately, when you really track it and kind of think through it, it's, it's really dissatisfaction, discontentment, grumbling against God himself and God's rule in the universe. That's pride, but the second batter, it's pretty similar, but presumption is a little bit different, verse 1, right? It says, David did not allow himself to be fixated on things that God and God alone was pleased to explain to him. Remember the book of Job? Job wants an audience with God, and Job says, I need to know why all this stuff happened to me. Remember God's response? Where were you when I created the universe? Right? Where were you when I created these mythical beasts like Leviathan and Bigfoot or the behemoth? You see, one of the simplest ways to suffocate contentment, it's presumption, right? It's, it's the spiritual attitude that says, I demand a hearing from God. It's an attitude that says, I know. I know more than others. I must know more than others. And yet here, David, he comes to us and he teaches us and says that, that he himself didn't say, okay, God, I must know why I'm not on the throne yet. I must know these sorts of things. He says, no, I, 
I don't know why. I, I don't think I'm able to comprehend God's timing. He's just way above me. I will just let God be God. That's what David does, but so often we have such a hard time letting God be God. Pride and presumption, they're really old foes, but they're some of the greatest foes. And they're some of the foes that I just don't think we talk about a lot. Or if we say things like, oh, I struggle with pride, we're like, oh yeah, me too. And we don't really think, wow, that's, pride is, pride is a really serious thing. And I think as we look at our world right now, I just think our world is just a cesspool of pride and presumption. Right? We see it all over the place. I and I alone know this. I am certain of that. I'm right about masks. Everyone else is wrong about masks. And sometimes we even take it further. Sometimes in our pride and our presumption, we presume to know the motivations of people's hearts. And yet, let me just say, the Bible is really, really clear that that is God's information and his information alone. I mean, it's clear. The heart is wicked. Who can know it? We can't even know our own hearts, and yet we so easily assume or assign various motivations on people and saying they're doing that because of this. But that's God's information. That's just presumption. There's so much pride and presumption around this world. And let me just say, one of the reasons why I see it so much is because I see it in my own life, right? It takes one to know one. I mean, this past year with, with all of its complications, none of us, can just say that our hands are clean. All of us have gotten into those arguments where our pride has been wounded and we, we just get into attack mode because we know more. We know better. And we're certain of it. And the scary thing is pride's deadly. Remember the, the shuttle Challenger? 1986, shuttle was going up And in 75 seconds after it started, it exploded in the air. Now, why? Well, it took a few weeks or months to figure it out. But but, but what happened was there was a a failure of an O-ring. I don't even know what that is. But there was an O-ring failure. But that's not the whole story. See, the the New York Times did a, a thing about it. And really, actually, a lot of engineers down the line actually said, hey, we think this O-ring, under a sort of pressure and being rattled around, it's going to fall out and it could be catastrophic. But higher up people said, nah, they're just small-time engineers. They they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, It's not enough for me to actually research this and think it through. Seven people died that day in some way because of pride. So much battling going on. So much talking, so little listening. So much battling. But I don't hear a lot of people battling pride, battling presumption. I don't think I can be the only one. You know, a, a couple of weeks ago, 
uh, my, my wife went to a conference and I was, uh, I, I was with my four kids all alone for two and a half days. And so we, we were out like playing and a couple neighbor uh, moms were like, hey, are you doing okay? And I was just like, that's weird. Yeah, I'm fine. And then I would get like texts like, hey, are you doing okay? And then originally I stepped back and I just started getting mad about it all. And I remember thinking, I mean, am I that incompetent? to keep my kids alive for like two days. And then I remember thinking, are just men that incompetent? And so I remember thinking, I'm just going to stand up for all men, all fathers at this moment, and I am going to dominate this two days. I mean, and then I step back and go, yeah, it wasn't even funny. All these, these, these women, it wasn't just that they had pity on me. I think they're just trying to be helpful, but I just rejected them, silenced them, assumed that they were just attacking masculinity or something. And instead of saying, oh, they're just trying to help. They were just trying to love me and encourage me. This is what pride does. We're in a battle. All of us. And here David says that his battle wasn't ultimately against Saul. That was not his greatest foe. His greatest foe was his pride. A pride that would say, I deserve to know as much as God knows. And you might say, well, where's the way out of this? I mean, pride's as old as the garden, isn't it? Isn't that the sin that caused Adam and Eve to fall? Pride, it is. But see, one of the glorious things is how the authors put our Bibles together. And you see Psalm 131, it comes right after Psalm 130. And I believe firmly that you can't understand or learn or apply Psalm 131 until you've fashioned Psalm 30 into your heart. Psalm 130, the pilgrim praises, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You only get to Psalm 131 through 130. And I'm not talking chronologically, I'm talking about spiritually. Until you understand that you are a sinner, that your iniquity is great, that you can't stand before God and his holiness, his greatness, his wisdom, his sovereignty, his providence. Until you have that sort of greatness of God and that sort of humility before him, you can't understand how you could actually write something like Psalm 131 where you could say, God will take care of it. God will be okay. David, David, he just battled pride. He battled presumption. And he did it because he could write things like Psalm 51. I mean, one of his great failures is his response to Psalm 51, right? He has a sin of Bathsheba, murder. I mean, goodness gracious, there's just sin all over this place. And I always struggled because I thought, how in the world could God and God, uh, God himself say that David is a man after his own heart? I mean, that's weird. Well, in some ways, I think it's because of how he responded to his sin. David, king, should have, right? We would assume David, when confronted by Nathan, David should have said, I'm the king, just be quiet and get along. I mean, come on, don't, don't come after me, I'm the king. I, you can't touch the king. David didn't do that. David responded, falling on his face before God and saying, Against you and you, Lord, have I sinned. See, the way forward 
is not just to say, yes, those are my foes, pride, presumption. It's to say, yeah, and I fight those foes. I battle those foes by confession and repentance. So, so maybe th- this morning, that, that, that's what the message is for you. Maybe it's just, just doing that with God. Or maybe it's just reaching out to someone and saying, I'm sorry, I, 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 I was proud in that moment. Or, or maybe it's just, God, search my heart. And it, Lord, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would actually speak to me. Bring up those moments or those times or those areas in my heart where I'm proud that I might, before you, confess, repent, and ask for your forgiveness. Now, second, verse two. What does this contentment look like? Well, it looks like rest, right? I have a calm and quiet soul, wrote David, and then he he gives us a word picture. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, the, the picture's pretty easy, Okay? Especially for you mothers, it's a, it's a really easy picture, right? So, so a child nurses, okay? A, a child is dependent upon their mother. And when a child, an infant, a baby, wants to communicate to their mom that they're hungry, they cry. And to the baby, to the infant, they, they're thinking like, oh, I'm going to die if I don't eat right now. Right? It's all about self-preservation, right? They are all about themselves. An infant's preoccupied with their needs, their singular needs. They are discontent. We have a word for it. They are fussy. But there comes a time when a baby is weaned. And in the Old Testament, in Israel, that was about age three or four. But but there comes a time when a baby is weaned. And when that happens, a baby can just be with their mother and not worry about being fed. You, you see, every single sleepless night of the mother, every time that mother feeds that baby, it's like a discipleship process. It's banking future trust in that baby because there's going to come a time when the, when the baby is weaned and the baby's going to say, Mom, I trust you to feed me when I should get fed. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And David's saying that's his relationship with God. He's like a, a weaned child saying, God, I trust you. As a weaned child trusts their mother, I trust you. And I can just be calm in your presence. It's the picture of contentment. David had no guarantee in his life. Very little guarantees in his life. And yet, he had contentment because he had God. And he submitted to God Trusting in God as an infant trusts in their mom when they're weaned. Right? The, the idea here is, the image here is, it's of submission. It's of trust. Which are, which are both hard things. Right? You want to talk about one of the dirtiest words in our kind of common vocabulary right now? It's submission, isn't it? And that's the idea here. That this contentment comes through trust and submission. I mean, recently I was talking to someone in this church and they, they a few years ago got diagnosed with a very serious illness and they're in constant pain. And I was talking with them, asking them how they were doing. And I just remember this person said, 
you know, God's never done anything wrong to me. God's good. And this is hard. And there are sleepless nights. And there's constant pain. But God's good in all of it. And there was just this eerie quietness. It was a testimony of rest and calm. They still were in pain. They still were going through things. But it was a testimony of their contentment, their trust, their submission to God saying, God knows what he's doing. And I'm telling you, it is a powerful message. Do you know that behind every providence, meaning everything that happens to you, that God, who is sovereign, every way that sovereignty works itself out in your personal life, whether it's glorious or whether it's cruel, behind it all is the smiling face of God. It's like the child with her mother, content with just the relationship with her mother, knowing that they trust their mother. Food's going to come. They've seen the mother's faithfulness over the years. And David's saying, I've seen God's faithfulness time and time again, and God will provide. God will do that which is right. Well, thirdly, let's just look at hope for a second. You see, contentment comes not just through battling pride. It doesn't come through rest. It also comes in hope. Hoping in God. I think it's really fitting that this, uh, it ends with a, sort of an exhortation, right? It's a, it's a call to hope in the Lord. Right? Not, not hope in greener pastures. Right? We all have those sorts of things. When I get that better job, when I get this, we all have our hope and we attach it to whatever that greener pasture is. And David says, my hope is not in the greener pasture. My hope is in God, who is the greener pasture. But I think it's still hard to relate to this text. And we're like, I don't know if you're anything like me. You're like, I don't know how I could write anything like this. There's such a contentness in David. I don't think we're meant to say that our hope is in David or a David-like experience. Our hope is that we'll get to this sort of spiritual elite status where we can finally be content with whatever happens in our lives. I don't think that's the message of our psalm that we're to take away. Our hope is not in David or in David-like experience. And yet our hope does flow downstream from David. Our hope is in a better David. A far better David. And that better David, one of the hallmarks of his character was he was content. Just think about this greater than David, Jesus Christ. He was content in the incarnation. You know, you you go to Philippians 2 and it says, right, he humbled himself to the point of a cross. Think of this, this, this greater than David, Jesus Christ, who, what? He didn't even have a place to lay his head, but he was content in his ministry. And then he's wrestling with his impending death 
And he's content to submit himself and his death to the will of his father. And then when Jesus says, this is who I am, my inner emotions, my inner uh, kind of disposition of the heart, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And he says, why? Because I am gentle and lowly. I am meek. I am humble. That's who Jesus is. He is humble. We're meant to not just see David here. We're meant to see a greater David who in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension is the ultimate content one. Satisfied in his identity, satisfied in his purpose, satisfied in the plan of God, he is content. He was meek and gentle. Jesus lived and died for our sins and he did so with an attitude of humility and contentment and joy. That is the ultimate hope in our text. It says hope in the Lord, all Israel. It's a call to hope. What are we to hope in in order to accomplish sort of our contentment? We're to hope ultimately in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to hope that we might fail to battle pride We might lose that battle from time to time, but Jesus won that battle for us. And that win, that war, can never be taken away from us. We can weather storms because Jesus weathered our storm for us. It's a bit like Jeremiah 17. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by its streams, and he does not fear when he comes, for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. That's where hope comes from. It, it, it comes from rooting yourself so deep in God that whatever heat comes, whatever trial comes, whatever hardship comes, whatever comes, you can withstand it. Because your hope is not in these other things. Your hope is not in a, a better tomorrow. Your hope is in a God who's going to ultimately make a better world. So where is your hope these days? Because where your hope is, there you have set your contentment on. And the terrifying thing is, wherever we set our hope on, whether it's a, a job or a person or a future, whatever it is, we know that it's going to let us down. And yet we just keep attaching our hope to it, thinking maybe next time, will find contentment in that hope. But only in God can you find true hope. And when you place your hope in God, that he is who he says he is, that he's accomplished what he's accomplished, and that he will fulfill the promises that he said and spoke and promised to accomplish, when you put your hope in God, you're going to be content. Even when, and this is part of the human condition, even when we have no idea what God is doing. That has been the condition of all of us this past year. We have no idea what God is doing. And it's terrifying. It's maddening. It's frustrating. But God is doing something. Hope in him. Trust in him. Submit yourself to him. Trust in his providential care for you. And you'll be content with whatever God brings you. 
Let's pray. Lord, we, we, we confess that there's so many times we are discontent or we attach our hope to things that we shouldn't attach our ultimate hope to and we're always disappointed. God, we pray that we would hope in you, that the, that, that would frame our true, our, our true souls. That would be a description of our, our, our spiritual vitality is that we, we hope and trust you. Lord, we pray that we would have a bigger view of your goodness with whatever you bring. And we just pray all this in your son's name. Amen.